This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, fresh out of my time-traveling pod and ready to get back into the swing of things, Wade. Wait, you said Kevin? I I don't think I know any Kevins. (laughs) Nice try. You thought that you would be able to do your year-end list without my input, but I'm here to correct you where you're wrong and cheer you on where you make the correct picks. (laughs) Listeners, we have a fantastic episode planned for you today. Not only is Kevin back, but we're gonna be counting down our top 10 films of 2020, not to be confused with the top 10 worst moments of 2020. We're looking at some of the best moments instead. We, we prefer to focus on the positive here on Seeing and Believing, and there was a lot of positive to be thankful for, uh, at least from a cinematic standpoint. So looking forward to talking about it. Yes, listeners, all that's coming up on this episode, episode 276 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, listeners, this is our top 10 films of 2020 episode. And Kevin, you have arrived. You're back. It's really good to talk to you and to hear your voice again. It's it feels like it's been forever. It kind of has been forever. We were just talking (laughs) about this uh, before starting recording, but it's been almost two months since uh, we have shared a recording together and I don't know. It just, it feels, it feels both like it, it flew by, but also it feels like a very long time ago, the last time I was on the show. So time gets weird when you have a baby. <laughs> no, it, it is, it is strange and things bleed together. Uh, things get fuzzy. You get baby brain. And so I, I totally get that. But yeah, it's been, it's been almost two months, which is wild. And it's great to know that you, Kylie, and baby Milo are doing great. You're doing, uh, seems like very good. So I'm very excited about that. And I know our listeners are too. Yeah, uh, everyone's doing well on on this end. We weathered the Christmas season okay and looking forward to a new year with 2021. Yes, so we're going to jump into our top 10 films of 2020 listeners. And this is always one of my favorite episodes of the entire year. It feels like a celebration and a culmination of all that we've been doing for the last 52 weeks. And it seems like every year, I think this is the sixth or seventh year that we've done it, Kevin, which is just wild. But it seems like every year we begin the conversation by discussing themes in our top tens. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you, do you see any sort of continuity between the movies on your list? Was there anything kind of going on in your mind? Did you have a, a different set of 
of questions that you were asking this year as you were putting films in your top 10? Did it look different from any other year? How did this process feel for you in 2020, I guess the end of 2020, beginning of 2021? Well, the the interesting thing is, uh, I don't, as far as themes go, I don't know that there's really something that in this 10 part Venn diagram where there's a single thing that they all converge on in the center, they're pretty, they're a pretty diverse set. And I think that that might've been what I noticed was unique about the list for 2020 was the diversity of, of choices that were available to us. I, I think with, with the lack of, you know, really big, uh, consensus, uh, picks coming out like you know the the blo- either the blockbusters or the more awards focused fair or those uh, movies from uh, some some big name directors like there are some that we were expecting to come out this year that got pushed back until 2021. Uh, there were others that just yeah we don't know when they're coming out exactly. But I guess the effect of having kind of those easy ones where you naturally gravitate towards those as meriting special consideration for list making. In the absence of that, it kind of forced me at least to dig a little bit deeper and think about what you know w- what merits a spot on this list. Like what do I really what makes a film stick in my mind? And some of the picks that I ended up with on my top 10 actually surprised me a little bit, not because I was surprised that they were good, but just surprised because I think maybe in another year, I might not have thought of them as top 10 material. Just It's, it's just interesting how the pandemic and the ripples from that kind of had a force a perspective shift when when it came to kind of summing up the year as a whole. Yeah, well, no, that's a good way to put it because I was trying to think through my list and compare it to previous years, and it, the word weaker wasn't coming to mind, but the word different was coming to mind as I was looking at our previous top tens. It just felt like this one was a little bit different. In, in, in a good way, in a positive way. And it's fascinating to look at these films. And I'm, I'm trying to pick out here. I think there's two, two that I saw in theaters. And that's just wild. That's just kind of crazy. But I will say the through line of my top 10 seems to be films that are honest and open about suffering and about grief, and yet there's hope, I think, in every single one of them. And maybe that is a reflection of how I feel about these previous 12 months. They've been difficult, and we face challenges, but hope seems to always bubble to the surface. And I, I don't find myself... Uh, a pessimist at this point, uh, I believe that there is hope. And even if it's not hope in terms of earthly structures, but there is that eternal hope. And so it seems to be that every single one of my films, almost every single one, uh, deals with that issue, but yet contains at least a morsel of hope within. So yeah, that's that's kind of what brings my movies together. I think we could Go ahead and, and hop in now. Uh, why don't you share with our listeners your number 10 film of the year? 
Yeah, so so my number 10 film is actually one of those picks that I was just talking about where in another year, I'm not necessarily sure that it would have leapt to mind as as a shoe-in for this list, uh, mostly because it it's part of an anthology, so that's something a little bit unusual about it. And normally, the with the way the new the brave new world of streaming works, I tend to think of series as you know not necessarily uh, television, but also not necessarily what I think of when I think of a feature film. It's just kind of in this this gray area for me. But this year, as I was thinking about what uh, films I just kind of was enthralled by that really stuck in my mind and where I kind of almost lost myself in the rhythms. I kept coming back to Steve McQueen's film Lover's Rock, which is a part of the uh, anthology series that he that ended up airing uh, at least stateside on Amazon Prime. And, uh, you know, this is a series of films that take a, a close look at the uh, the black experience uh, in Steve McQueen's native England, and this particular film, Lovers Rock, I think is both an exemplar of what McQueen was really hoping to accomplish with all of those films in that anthology, and also just serves as just a great example of cinema, maybe at its purest. So uh, this is a movie that's. Basically, it's more or less plotless. I mean, there's there's some vestiges of narrative. There are characters, and there is a sequence of events, and there's kind of an arc to it. But really, McQueen isn't all that interested in telling much of a story with Lover's Rock. This is basically just a chronicle of a house party that happens in this neighborhood in England. It's a bunch of people, uh, primarily of West Indian descent. Uh, They get together for a dance party. There's a lot of reggae music, and McQueen just kind of lets us be there with them. And he doesn't really try to force a a lot of high drama into the story. There's some drama, but most of all, he's just kind of wanting to give us a feel for the shape of these people's lives, uh, primarily through the way they interact with each other and the way they interact with this music. And while I was sitting and watching this film, I kind of lost track of time a little bit and not being a party person myself I actually I had a good a better time with this film than I often have at big parties uh it's just there's there's exuberance in this film you really get the sense of uh people whose lives may be difficult in other areas but they they get together they they dress up to the nines uh and they just sort of let themselves experience the joy of the moment there's uh certain anger there are some characters that have this this deep uh, angst that they feel uh, that creeps in from other areas of their lives, and they kind of work it out over the course of this party. There's uh, there's romance, there's friendship. All of these things are kind of working together. It almost becomes a microcosm of of life itself. And I just I can't say enough good things about the way McQueen uses his camera and these really long takes to kind of just not to almost give you not really a fly on the wall sense because it's more stylized than that but to just film these people in in such a way film these actors in such a way where you the artifice of it almost falls away like you you don't feel like you're watching actors acting you don't feel like you're watching characters you feel like you're just watching 
human beings. And I just, I loved that quality to it. And it also has one of my favorite scenes of the year, which is a spontaneous sing-along that breaks out to this one song, Silly Games, uh, on the dance floor. The music, the DJ cuts out the music, and all of these dancers kind of just lift up their voices together and sing the words that they know by heart. And there is something just magical and life-giving about that. Yeah, Kevin, that's a fantastic scene. And Lover's Rock, I think I have it at number 15 right now. A fantastic movie. And you're right in that it captures an experience. An experience that I really don't know much about. These are individuals. This is a culture an area of the world that I've never been to. And you get to peer inside of that. And I I think it's fantastic. The beauty of the movie is that it presents a scene that is maybe distant from me. And yet it creates a feeling that I can relate to in the sense that I've been to large gatherings. I wasn't a party person, but you have these these get-togethers, whether they are barbecues or whether friends are hanging out at someone's party uh, or house, whatever it is. And it feels like that moment or that night will be a big moment. And it's it's funny because whenever I, I go hiking, uh, if I'm going to go hiking, uh, this big hike in the national park, maybe we're going to be out for 12 hours, whatever it is. I'll oftentimes look at a person or the group that I'm with and say, hey, you're going to remember this day for the rest of your life. Good or bad, you're going to remember this day. And I feel like this is a movie, it essentially says, hey, this night, like you're going to remember it for the rest of your night uh, life. And I can relate to that because there are moments in my life where where I did feel that. And so, yeah, I think this is a great pick at, at number 10. Yeah, that's something that you, you you articulated it very well, that McQueen is just really great at giving us the, these indelible images and like this impression of an experience that is, is stronger than merely just pointing a camera at something. It's kind of amazing how he does it. And it's one of the reasons why I think he might be one of the most rawly talented filmmakers we have working today, just because... I feel like McQueen is able to construct an artifact to evoke that in ways that few other directors can. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great way to put it. And even something like Widows, which I feel like the, the story lacks a bit, there's that atmosphere. There's that camera that just kind of hovers in certain places and gives us certain images that you you can't forget. Uh, so good good number ten pick. Uh, so my number ten pick, and it's it's hard. Number ten is the hardest one for me, harder than my my number one of the year, because there's this certain prestige of being in the top ten. And so the films that are ten through fifteen, I'm just like, why? Well, I, I mean, they might be separated by by hair, 
And yet I've got to pick one of them and one will go in the top 10 canon and the others will not. And so it's, it's really hard. I went back and forth, but eventually I landed on Soul from Pete Doctor and Kemp Powers, the Pixar film. I talked about it last week on episode 275 with Sarah Welch Larson. I, I don't want to go into too much depth because I, I did talk about it last week. Uh, but this story does follow Joe. He's a, music teacher by necessity, while at the same time he's looking for his big break as a jazz musician. And he eventually lands not in the afterlife, but in the pre-life, the great before. And we go on this adventure and the film turns left when you think it's going to go right. Uh, And the moments that are created in this movie are truly special. I talked about it last week, but the moment where... 22 is inside of Joe's body and she's sitting down and and she observes uh, people playing in New York City and she catches a leaf in Joe's hand. Uh, There's something just amazing about that visual story telling. And I could go on and on too about the score, about the, the, the graphic design and the examination of vocation. This says something about meaning and purpose that we really don't get in many Disney movies. This is a much richer, fuller uh, version of what it means to have a positive vocation and what it means to live out a meaningful life. And, you know, Pete Docter, who's given us some great films like Inside Out and Up and Monsters, Inc., uh, he's taking on more of a creative role at Pixar And so he might not be directing for a little while, if ever. And so it's nice to see him uh, really give us an amazing picture, if this is the last one he does or the last one that he's done or will do uh, in a little while. Music moves people. I'm Joe. I teach middle school band. Music is life. You just need to know where to look. Though we are parting ways, we shall come around to touch eyes again. If love is the foundation, if the purpose be to recycle life, I promise I'll bring us to one. Spend your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you. Love. The brilliant, passionate you. Love, love. That's ready to contribute something meaningful and to this world. Get ready. Your life is about to start. Yeah, you know, Wade, you you mentioned the score to Soul in passing, and maybe this is a good sidebar for us to just take a moment to appreciate just what a great year uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have had in terms (laughs) of uh their their work on on soundtracks they they did this one they also did mank which uh spoiler alert is not going to make it on either of our top 10 lists but (laughs) it's a very impressive uh score and i really like how they are showing themselves to be more and more versatile i think the the soundtrack to soul is one of the things i like the most about it just how it's simultaneously uh, minimalist and and lush and the way the different ways that the the afterlife is scored as compared to the the earthly life i just thought it, it's 
it's brilliant and it's one of the favorite, my favorite things about it. And it, along with the sound design in Soul, are, are two of the big reasons why Soul might be the movie that I'm most disappointed that I did not get to see in a theater this past year, just because, man, experiencing those soundscapes on a theatrical sound system is just something that can't be replicated in your living room. So it's very good. And that, I think, extends to the rest of the film as well. I think it's a very good film. It's almost like Pixar made its own version of the Book of Ecclesiastes, right? Like this this idea that Joe is really, he wants certain things out of life, and he thinks certain things give his life meaning. And a lot of the film is about him going on a journey and discovering, well, what actually gives life meaning? What, what does his life really mean? And what you know, what gives any life meaning? Like, where does that come from? And the ways that this film finds to answer that question, I think are just simply wonderful. Yeah. And I love the relationship that Joe has with his parents in this film. And his father is is already deceased, but we get to see some flashbacks. We get to see him work through some issues with his mother. And it just gives us this sort of full picture of what it means to... Uh, live in community with people and how that's so important. And we don't think about that when we talk about vocation and following our dreams, but uh, it's it's something that we can't get away from and we shouldn't get uh, away from. So yeah, my number 10, uh, Soul. Well said indeed. It's a, it's a good pick for your number 10. Moving on to my number nine, you mentioned, Wade, how hope was a, an ingredient that you found in all of your uh, in, in all of the films that you chose for your list this year. And I think that's true of a lot of the films that I, I picked, but my number nine film is maybe not what I would what I would describe as hopeful. That would be Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking <laughs> of Ending Things. And whatever hope uh, these characters might have for their lives and whatever hope Charlie Kaufman feels for uh, life in in general uh, is you know who can say, but what's on screen in this film is is maybe not so much about you know affirming life as just coming to terms with the disappointments that life deals out to you. This is kind of a film that is in part about regret, about the the memories that that one has that kind of shift under your feet over the years as you return to them over and over and the ways that sometimes they can reinforce uh, an entire worldview so that they become less of a document of the past and more of a document of an entire perspective, an entire way of seeing the world. And for this particular character played by uh, Jesse Plemons, who is great as always, and by uh, Jesse Buckley, who plays the uh, uh, his love interest in this film, if, if that is an appropriate term. I'm not sure if it really is. It's a very f- fascinating film, and those two central performances are just utterly mesmerizing. I mean, Jesse Buckley, given a character to play that is very difficult to make work, who's kind of simultaneously a flesh-and-blood person and the protagonist— but is also sort of a construct. The the fact that she's able to find such a great way to walk that tightrope where she feels both flesh and blood and also 
abstract in a way is just very utterly awe-inspiring. And Jesse Plemons is just he's really he's kind of carved out this niche for himself as for with playing kind of creepy oddballs. <laughs> and uh I, I don't know if that's I, I I'm wondering if there's a better way to put that, but he he does kind of have this way of of holding himself where he's very interior. Like you you get the sense he's very withdrawn into himself. And there are deep reserves of feeling underlying that that Plemons gives us glimpses of and that he leaves you just wanting to keep plumbing that character and keep wanting to understand them, I guess. And I think that I'm Thinking of Ending Things is a great example of how Charlie Kaufman can give us a very claustrophobic sort of film, like a film that you feel kind of like the walls are closing in on you and you're very... You're almost trapped inside one person's mind. And the fact that Kaufman can again and again take that setup and make it uh, a film that I'm interested to see again and also just interested to kind of plumb the depths of, I think, is real testament to his artistry, both as a writer and a, as a director. Yeah, it's, it's funny because when you, see, when you look into the eyes of, of Plemons in this film, uh, you almost see a couple of, a couple of squirrels juggling knives. It, it's just there's something kind of going on behind his <laughs> behind his stare. You just you you know it's there, but you can't quite put a handle on it. Uh, I I like this film. I, I thought it was fine. I'm I enjoyed the movie when it felt like it was kind of just free flowing. Uh, some of these conversations were fun. There were some really humorous moments i didn't like the movie when it felt like it was trying really hard to say something and there were a couple of points when it just seemed like oh they're quoting this author and this individual and that person and they're making this reference because it's supposed to mean something and what whatever it means you know i don't know it's it's inside kaufman's head Uh, but i i do like these ideas and I like the idea of of taking a story about an individual I don't know if you would say sleepwalking through life and just kind of mixing it all up and adding a layer of of bizarreness to it Uh, I, I ultimately at the end of it it does feel like Kaufman is making something that's very Kaufman and I don't know if it hits the heights of his other movies, but I think there's there's a lot to digest here, which makes it a meaningful watch. I just don't know if I don't know if I can get myself to see it again anytime soon. Um, but maybe I'll get there one day. Yeah, you know when uh, Sarah Welch Larson was actually on the show to help me review this this film, like she was with you and Soul, and she and I kind of danced around that question too of of whether we we really we really got the film or whether it was just sort of Charlie Kaufman working out his own obsessions, kind of in public view, and what it all really meant. And we kind of arrived at sort of a a conclusion, but. Part of that conclusion was also like, we aren't really sure we fully have plumbed the mysteries of this film. And for us, at least, that was that was enough and that was okay. But definitely maybe not a film uh, for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Well, my number nine is a movie that might not be for everybody as well. It's Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You. It's directed by Tom Zimney. And you know what's funny? I was looking over our list, Kevin, and, and just the nature of the year, and I was out at one point, you were out at another point. There are six films on my list that you and I have not officially reviewed together. Uh, a couple of those I've reviewed with other individuals, but six we actually have not talked about. And there's five from your list that we have not talked about. So it's kind of a strange year. One of those that we have not uh, discussed in depth is a letter to you. This is one of those films that's essentially a documentary of an album being made. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles and we get to see uh, all of those songs played out. So if you want to listen to Letter to You with some commentary interspersed, that's that's what this Bruce Springsteen documentary is is really all about. Here's why it works for me. One, I'm I'm a big Springsteen fan. The next is because this is one of the few times, actually I think it's the only time that Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band have allowed a camera or cameras into one of their recording sessions. This is the first album they all got together and recorded as a team since uh, Born in the USA in the 1980s. And so you really get to see these friendships collide in this documentary. The theme of the album, in addition, kind of adds to that because it is about aging. It is about death. It is written from the perspective of someone who has lived life and they're, they're nearing the end. And to be able to hear those songs and those lyrics and to see these band members who have all visually aged over time, uh, and yet they're still together. It's, it's really a fascinating watch. And Springsteen, at one point in the documentary, he says, We all have our own ways of praying. I restricted my prayers to three minutes and a 45 RPM record. If you get it right, it has the power of prayer. And these songs are his spiritual meditations. And within them, there is this melancholy nature. There's one song called Last Man Standing, where he talks about how he is the last living member of his first ever band, his teenage band, and what that's like. So it is melancholy, but at the end of it, there is hope. Uh, at one point he sings, death is not the end. And so this is one of the, one of those movies that I'll, uh, you know, I'll watch over and over again. I love the album. I think the album's great. Um, and it's, it's really special and meaningful to me personally. All right. What can I say? The greatest thrill of my life is standing behind that microphone with you guys behind me. Let's do it. I'm in the middle of a 45-year conversation with these men and women I'm surrounded by. Faded pictures in an old scrapbook. I started playing the guitar because I was looking for someone to correspond with. And after all this time, I still feel that need to talk to you. All right, East Readers, let's do this thing. Yeah, I, uh, I. This is the only film on on your list that I have not 
gotten around to yet. Part of that, I'm just going to use the baby as an excuse, like, oh, I just haven't had time to watch everything. But part of it is also <laughs> just, you know, frankly, this this film wasn't on on my radar as much just because, you know, I definitely don't compare to you in terms of uh, fandom for, for Bruce Springsteen. But I think one thing that I really appreciate about uh, your perspective, Wade, on documentaries like this is you you do a very good job of making me want to watch these documentaries about uh, musicians and bands that I don't really have a whole lot of personal connection to. But the the way that, that you talk about the filmmaking and the perspective that it lends on the creation of this music and the the uh, experience of the music itself really makes me want wish that I had that personal connection makes me want to see the film. So I think that, uh, yeah, well, uh, even though I haven't seen the film, I, I want to, and I think you, uh, describe its appeal really well. And it's, it's fascinating too, because if someone doesn't relate to the documentary in the same way I do, it, it does bring to mind that there is something like that out there for each person. Isn't there, there's a song or an album or even a film that just seems to hit them personally and really work for them. And so uh, it seems like it represents something, uh, even even though it might not touch everyone emotionally like it, like it did for me. Moving on to my number eight. You know, Wade, I, I'm a simple man. I hear that there's a new Hirokazu Koreeda film coming out. I make sure that I see the new Hirokazu Koreeda film, and I like the new Hirokazu Koreeda film. And the his film, The Truth, is no exception. This is definitely meriting a spot on my top 10, not just because I'm a Koreeda fanboy, but also because I think it represents uh, some growth for him. I think that uh, it's 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 his first uh, film that was made in a language other than than Japanese. Uh, it stars a primarily uh, white cast, and its exploration of familial dynamics. Uh, you know, Koreeda is known for making his family dramas, but I found that the way that the truth approaches that subgenre is. Unusual for Koreeda and very rewarding, I think, if you uh, are familiar with his work or just enjoy uh, fresh takes on family dynamics. This is a film that stars Catherine Deneuve in a just a really wonderful performance as a uh, French movie star who has a new memoir coming out that's kind of uh, her talking about her life and her past career and just sort of coloring everything with hindsight, I guess. And she is one of these uh, one of these characters who is who is very vain, who's very self-focused in a way. A lot of the tension in the film derives from the family around her, her daughter played by Juliette Binoche, her uh, partner Ethan Hawke, uh, the ways that they see themselves as part of Deneuve's life in this film. And the subtle differences between the way she sees their place in her life and the way they've experienced their place in her life. And that conflict is very rich. And Koreeda's ability to draw it out was just very, 
uh, he he's so good at exploring these conflicts without trying to gin it up or or goose it to make it more dramatic and kind of give one of the actors this big uh this big thespian scene where they kind of get to uh do a a few lines for their oscar reel and i i think that that subtlety in modulating the performances. It's impressive because Koreeda was working in, in slightly unfamiliar ground for him. Uh, it's impressive because, you know, these these are giants of the screen. I mean, Catherine Deneuve, Juliet Binoche, uh, Ethan Hawke, I think, is just really good in a supporting role here. And the the delicacy also of the filmmaking is just that's Koreeda's tr- calling card in a lot of ways. And it's just so gratifying to see him stretch himself as an artist and still reach the the same heights i don't remember you were just a baby and you daddy no i've never been here before the house looks like a castle it does yes even though there's a prison just behind it Welcome. You know, Kevin, I am pretty jealous because I love uh, Coreta, and this film made my number thirteen. It didn't make my top ten, but it's on your top ten. So that 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 kind of bugs me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, this is this is one of those that I kept kind of going back and forth. Ultimately, it didn't land, but it just is a fantastic picture, even if it's not on my top ten. I love the poster. I love the way the title is composed on the the American poster. The film in English is called The Truth, and the poster says The Truth, period. And it's this fun sort of, I think, play on the story because we're never really going to get to the truth, period. This is about family members coming together, confessing, issues and problems and resentments and talking about good times, talking about bad times, but you're never really going to work all that out. That's just how it is with family, even the best relationships. The truth will always kind of be, I wouldn't say up for grabs, but it's, it's not as steady as you think it will be. And this is a film that emphasizes that. And it finds a way to see hope in these relationships. I keep going back to that word hope, while at the same time realizing they're not ever going to work out all of their issues. Like that's just what it is. But maybe they can find a way to still love each other. And yeah, this is a tender film, a uh, really great film from uh, uh, Ada. Yeah, it's it's fun to see Ada almost. I, I mean, I. It's a difficult comparison to make like this, but Rashomon is such a towering achievement in in Japanese cinema, and it deals with a lot of those same themes about how the events, the same events, can happen to to different people, and they'll they'll see the scene completely differently, and that leads you to question: Well, you know, what is truth? Uh, who who defines it? Like, is it even really knowable? Is it even possible to arrive at the truth? Period. And by the end of both that film and this film, you, you kind of come to the point where that's that's almost beside the point. Is 
those abstract questions about the truth period, um, the more important thing is, can we hope, can humans still be good to each other? And I think the answers that both filmmakers arrive at are just very beautiful in their own ways. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great way to put it. Uh, so I'm going to move on to my number eight. If we're talking about these tender movies that focus on relationships, uh, then Driveways by Andrew On is a great example of that. That's my number eight for the year. We talked about this some time ago on the podcast. For those who haven't seen the movie, uh, this is about a young eight-year-old boy named Cody. Him and his mother, they actually move into his aunt's house who recently passed away and they get in and find that she was living in some pretty dire conditions. They meet up with a grouchy neighbor next door, pray, played by Brian uh, Dennehy, in his his last role on screen, and they form this unlikely relationship. Now, when you when you hear that, you kind of see where the movie's going. But what I love about this film is that it does pose as a movie about unlikely friendships, but then it branches out to wrestle with questions of grief, differences within families, old age, and and regret. And there's a particular subplot involving uh, the, the young boy Cody's mom, who's played by Hong Chow, and she sees her sister's home and she sees the state that it's in. She sees that it, it is, uh, it's, it's the product of someone who hoards. And she realizes there, there was a good deal she did not know about her sister. And that happens in life. And that's explored throughout the film. Characters realize that the relationships they had with other people or the information they thought they knew about other people, their family members, it didn't turn out to, to be to be true. And this relationship is not meant to last forever. So the relationship between Brian uh, Dennehy's character and Cody, it's not going to last forever. But hopefully they can help each other in the meantime. And that's what happens. And, and you know, Kevin, we talked about it when we reviewed the film. There's a, there's a piece of dialogue at the end of the movie from Brian Dennehy. And it's one of the best moments of 2020. I mean, it is fantastic where he, he talks about his relationship with his wife who passed away, his relationship with his, his daughter. He talks about, uh, at one point earlier in the movie, not attending church anymore. And all of these emotions bubble to the surface. And it's, it's something really powerful. And as Cody is listening to that, you know that that's something he'll remember for the rest of his life. And it's those conversations that change our lives. And uh, man, yeah, just a really good movie, a really quiet, meditative, tender film that lets the characters sort of reveal themselves uh, layer by layer. Yeah, one of the finest m movie moments of 2020. That is that is high praise. This was a year that had lots of just very you know knock you on your back kinds of kinds of moments, like the one you just mentioned. And Brian Dennehy, uh, between him and Chadwick Boseman, we we lost two just 
acting giants and they both did like the, their cinematic swan songs are are both really something to behold and Dennehy is just absolutely great in driveway so that that's a good pick why is your shirt all wet cody an army guy is in the front what army guy an old man on the porch did he talk to you hi there hi i'm kathy april who lived here was my sister okay is my son bothering you no did you spray water on him? No. Well, he's not supposed to talk to strangers, so. Good idea. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Moving on to my number seven is another film that has just some very startling uh, spiritual resonances to it. And this was a year where, I don't know, maybe it's just my imagination because there was less, uh, you know, bigger budget fare drowning everything out but uh, i really do feel like there were a lot of films this year that were that were interested uh in spirituality maybe not necessarily yeah. religion per se but we're very interested in just sort of exploring well what does it mean to to have peace in your in your soul what does it mean to try to be mindful of things beyond just the 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 material world around you and my number seven pick darius martyr's sound of metal is one of those pictures it's a movie about a heavy metal drummer played by riz ahmed who just gives a powerhouse performance it's it's hard to overstate just how good he is in this picture oh, yeah. um but he begins to his character uh, begins to lose his hearing early in the film, and we follow him uh, sort of as he learns what his life is going to look like now that the the thing that has given his life a shape up to this point, music, is no longer really possible for him to pursue the way he once did. And I think just from that description, I already you know, before I saw this film, I already knew, okay, this is going to be a film about, you know, uh, somebody uh, suffering a, a physical setback. And the entire movie is going to be about them coming to terms with it. And the big climactic moment is going to be, oh, they, they make their peace with <laughs> yeah. their new disability, or they find a way to, to treat their disability so that it's not really an inconvenience for them anymore. And this film is really not so much interested in that. I think that part of Ahmed's journey in in this picture takes maybe the first half and then everything after that is much more interested in okay, he has this this physical disability. What does that what about the spiritual side of things? Like what what does that mean for for him spiritually? What does he need to address in him inside himself that has nothing to do with uh, his physical condition? And 
Martyr's way of exploring that is really interesting. I also really loved how this film is one that doesn't see physical disability as an obstacle to be overcome, but as an integral part of many people's lives that they don't believe makes them broken or or need fixing or something that they just kind of deal with. It's its own beautiful part of the fabric of their lives. And Martyr's way of drawing that out through these character story and even using the sound design to really create these character moments is just very well considered and just a, an incredible uh, way for Martyr to make his directorial debut. I actually was startled when I, when I first learned that. I was like, this film is from first-time feature filmmaker? That's incredible because this is a... An incredible film. It is, and we'll talk about it later on when it appears on on my list. But I love how you describe you describe the movie, the synopsis, and you you basically lay out how it could end up being this sort of cliche journey. And the film is is very it takes a different turn. And I don't want to give anything away, but the movie goes to a different place geographically towards the end and it further reinforces Ruben's journey as an individual and it also opens up his his girlfriend and bandmate Lou's story and their relationship with each other and it it just kind of it came out of left field for me but I loved that sort of twist and that sort of turn. And this is one of those movies that pushes us to consider our where, where we get peace and stillness and comfort from. Is it in our own abilities or is it tapping into something, something greater in the universe? And I love those spiritually minded questions here. And I think what you said too is good. There are a lot of films like that this year, and it seems like they're they're all kind of searching for something more, capital M, uh, something more in this world. But yeah, Sound of Metal, oh, what a what a great film. Yeah, I I love to be surprised by films, and this one really surprises me. And I don't know, I just I I can't say enough good things about it. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Well, speaking of smaller films that might not be on people's radars, my number seven is Minari by Lee Isaac Chung. And this is a movie from A24 that is technically a 2020 release. Uh, It hit some limited theatrical digital runs. Uh, If you were Fortunate to be able to get a ticket to one of those. It also hit some film festivals, some digital, uh, some, I I think, in person before the pandemic hit. And it is one of those movies that, 
listeners just need to check out when it does uh, get a bigger release, whether that's at home or in theaters later on in the year. This follows uh, a young boy in the 1980s. He's a seven-year-old Korean-American, and he is basically uprooted from the West Coast by his father, mother, and sister to go to rural Arkansas. And there, his father has this dream of of creating a farm, a large garden to grow Korean plants uh, to sell to other Korean Americans. And what I love about this story is it it examines uh, family. It also examines the difficulty of integration in a world outside of your own. And I love how this movie kind of goes back and forth from the perspective of the parents to the children. And it's funny because the parents, they, they, all they can worry about is, is money. And, and rightfully so. They want to pay the bills. They need this big experiment to work. But then when you look at the kids, what are the kids worrying about? They're worrying about their relationships with their, with their parents. And it's this fascinating look at the fears we take into adulthood and the fears that we experience as children. I also appreciate the way Christianity is portrayed in this film. The characters join a rural Arkansas church, and it's a little awkward for them. And there are points when the individuals at church uh, don't treat them like they should. But it's, I feel like, a balanced approach. And we see that there's good there, even if those people maybe don't express it correctly. Uh, so yeah, uh, Minari from Lee Isaac Chung is, is a really fantastic movie and uh, one of the best of, of the year. Yeah, it is one of the best of the year, and uh, we're going. I'm going to be talking about it a little bit further on in this list, so I won't say a whole lot more here. But uh, I'm definitely have have things to say about it. It is just a a wonderful, delicately observed family drama, and I can't wait for it to get a wider audience because it is just it's a it's a jaw dropper for sure. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. 미국 애들은 할머니랑 같이 방 쓰는 거 싫어한다던데. I don't like grandma. 쟤는 안 그래요. 한국애니까. Grandma smells like Korea. 야, 뭐라고? Grandma smell? Well, the next spot in my list, number six, is uh, 
the latest Jane Austen adaptation that we have been graced with. And uh, when the Critics Society that I'm a member of was voting on our year-end awards, uh, we kind of have this, this Google Doc set up where the members can just sort of chat back and forth and make recommendations and make their cases for why their favorite movie you know, deserves a nomination, this, that, or the other thing. And for Emma... Uh, what what I said was basically, as long as they keep making great Austin adaptations like this one, I will keep nominating them for our year-end awards because <laughs> I feel like the last few years we've gotten some really good ones. I love Love and Friendship was my second favorite movie of of its year based on uh, Austin's novella Lady Susan, uh, and this one is just it's just a delight. It's such a fun film. It really it maintains the the usual austin trappings you know we're we're in georgian england there's there's lavish production design great clothes you know all of all of that that's kind of what you tend to expect out of an austin film but i think de wilde kind of has this this uh this wry sensibility that she she brings to the material that you know is definitely not unheard of in an Austin adaptation. I mean, wryness is something that is Austin's stock and trade, but the way that DeWilde finds to put a spin on it so that this film feels almost modern without being the sort of I don't know equivalent of you know the Netflix show Bridgerton, where it's just very self consciously like look at us make a very modern, very edgy period piece. DeWilde doesn't really succumb to that temptation. This is still, this feels period appropriate. And yet the way that she directs her actors, uh, particularly the the really great Anya Taylor-Joy as, as the title character, just gives it a very refreshed feeling that is far removed from the the old cliche of period pieces kind of being uh, you know, stuffy costume dramas. This is anything but stuffy. And I don't know, there are a few films I had a better time with uh, than, than Emma, just in terms of pure uh, entertainment value. And this is also the last film that I was able to see in a movie theater before everything shut down. And it continues to be the, the most recent film that I've seen in a theater. And for that, just seeing all that sumptuousness on the big screen and just the joy of that experience, I I have to to give it a, a thumbs up just for that. It's, it's just near and dear to my heart for that reason, among many other reasons as well. She's the natural daughter of nobody knows who. Probably no Her allowance is very liberal. Nothing has been grudged for her improvement. She is known only as a parlor boarder at a common school. She is pretty and she is good tempered. And that is all. That is all. These are not trivial recommendations, Mr. Knightley. Till men do fall in love with well-informed minds instead of handsome faces, a girl with such loveliness as Harriet has a certainty of being admired and sought after wherever she goes. I am very much mistaken if your sex in general would not find these qualities the highest claims a woman could possess. You know, Kevin, it was the second to last movie that I saw before everything went wild. And the the last one was Onward, Pixar's Onward. But this really did feel like the last big experience because Priscilla and I went to the theater. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Onward, I just kind of slipped into a showing a couple days later because we were going to review it on the show. And there's definitely that nostalgia factor there, right? Remembering 
the good times. A lot could be said about this film. Anya Taylor-Joy, for me, is one of the performers of 2020. We talked about The Queen's Gambit, a television show that I thought was just amazing. And she is fantastic here. The movie lets her be mean. And I know that that's not an easy thing to do, to, to make your main character snobbish and then to help her change throughout the story. But that transition works pretty well. And it opens up the film in a number of different ways. But yeah, I think it's a, a really a great movie. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll talk about it later. For now, I'm going to move on to number six. This will be the last film before we take a quick break. How do I talk about this film? Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, so this is Christopher Nolan's Tenet, landed number six on my list. It's a confusing movie, and the plot isn't always easy to follow. But I, I do have to note that it's not necessarily in this big budget blockbuster kind of way where there's so much happening and you say, I just don't, I don't get it. Sure, Nolan is a bit clunky at times, as he is with with plot accelerators, as he gets us from A to B, kind of always been that way. But after watching this movie, I really felt like it was more of a the big sleep than anything else. So when Howard Hawks' film, you know, you could watch that five times and not really know all the details of this noir story. But that's not really the point. The point is the atmosphere, is the mood. And I think what you get in Tenet is that time is really messy. And I recently read a book called The Nolan Variations, uh, which is amazing because it, it, it lets Nolan kind of talk about all of his movies, really kind of the first time that he's ever done this uh, before. And I've gained a greater appreciation for Christopher Nolan. I've always kind of been a fanboy anyway. And his use of time, which is a through line in all of his movies. And what we get here is that the time is just, it's, it's really hard to straddle. Even if you could go backwards through it, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's very confusing. And in the end, what I walked away with is this feeling that it's very difficult to manipulate the natural universe, and that even if we could manipulate time, it's difficult to be our own God. It's, it's difficult to wrap our minds around it because it's that one commodity that always, uh, it's always elusive to us. So I, a lot to appreciate about the movie. I've only seen it once. I've heard from a number of people that the second time is is actually better. So really excited to talk about it. Uh, Washington is great here. We get a lot of Bond references, a lot of espionage. And uh, I think it makes for a pretty fun experience. <laughs> You know, Wade, I feel like every year uh -oh. there's one there's 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 one film on our respective uh top ten lists where one person really likes it and the other person just 
does not see what the other person sees in it. I I still remember the year where I had The Shape of Water at my number two, and you're just like, this isn't that great. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I'm in that place now with with you and, and Tenet. <laughs> I, I'm glad you brought up The Big Sleep, because that actually... I, I, I was kind of holding off on seeing Tenet for a while because I'm like, who knows? Maybe the pandemic will will get better, haha. And we'll, you know, I'll, I'll be able to actually see it on the big screen because it really did seem like this was a film that was was intended for that kind of overwhelming sensory experience. So I was kind of holding off. It didn't work out, so I I watched it fairly recently, and so I'm, I'm still kind of mulling it over. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the big sleep, that crystallized something for me, which which was that. I don't have a problem with not fully understanding a film. Like if a film's really complex or just has lots of really heady ideas that I don't fully grok on a, on a first viewing, that really doesn't bother me that much. But the key is I have to be interested enough in finding out what actually went on to watch it a second time to get those answers. And I don't know, with Tenet, I, I feel like that movie is already sliding out of my brain and there's not a whole lot that I find compelling about it to go back and unravel its mysteries, even if I could, which I might not be smart enough to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I I don't know if anybody is smart enough. I know that there are some videos out there and you can watch it, but I was, I was very much interested in this. It's, it's difficult to know who to trust, which of the characters are, are good, which of them are villainous. I mean, you do know some of the big baddies, but where do we get our footing on the film? And it's definitely an experience as a viewer. You definitely feel something. And I think for me, I I clung to that feeling. And, uh, you know, Priscilla watched it. She, she, she thought it was better than Inception. I don't think it's better than Inception. Uh, but I do think it's a pretty good film. And uh, I I want to see how it's going to live on. Because it's, it's this... I don't know. It's it's just kind of a strange movie. It came out at a strange time. When people look back at Nolan's career, what will they think of Tenet? Uh, I'm excited to hear those conversations. I, I will give you this. I do think that Tenet's reputation will rise as, as more people kind of have the chance to revisit it or or maybe reappraise it at at a later date when we're not just overwhelmed by everything else that's happening in the real world. So I'll, I'll give you that. But I, at least... Speaking just personally for me, this is probably not a film that I'm going to be <laughs> eager to revisit anytime soon. <laughs> well, listeners, we're going to leave it at that for now. We will be back in just a few minutes, and we're going to talk about our five through one films. Don't go anywhere. I don't know if we'll disagree coming up, but um, you never know. We'll be back here on Seeing and Believing in just a moment. Listeners, that song is Depth of Hollow by the Fair Green Band. Kevin, we're doing our top 10. We're counting down our top 10 movies of 2020. But our listeners out there, they might want to know more about some of the, I don't know, other 
pop cultural artifacts that came out in 2020, maybe movies or television or video games. And Christ in pop culture has that waiting for them on the website. Yeah, you know, here on Seeing and Believing, we are all movies and TV all the time. And, you know, I, I like specializing in that stuff, but that does mean that a lot of other corners of pop culture, I just don't really have the time to explore, which is why when uh, the great staff writers at Capca kind of put their brains together and put together a, a reckoning with the past year, not just with movies and television, but also music podcasts, books, even like current events, memes, all of that comes in for consideration at the end of the year. Typically, there's the the Christ and Pop Culture 25 that we do. This is not a typical year, but there is still plenty to read about the best pop culture artifacts of 2020. Uh, those have been going up over the past week. I think this week is when that series closed itself off, but those are all on the ChristandPopCulture.com front page if you want to go check out not just the film and TV world, but also everything beyond. We're here in the second half of our show where we're counting down our number five picks through our number one picks. So the uh, the competition's getting pretty stiff and fierce here, Wade. And uh, I I like this part of the show, maybe even the best, because I feel like this is where you know the the stakes get higher. And I, I even though I kind of already know what's on your list, I do like feeling the the culminations we build towards your number one so this is going to be fun yeah you're like i mean i can allow something like tenant in your six through ten but it really gets it gets real in one through five and i've got to i've got to stand up for myself <laughs> yeah i yeah if, if tenant had been like at your number say your number two spot oh. or, or whatever mm. then you know the gloves would be off and we'd, we'd have to throw down oh, wow. but fortunately <laughs> uh the stakes weren't quite as high this time uh but uh speaking of tenet let's really quickly recap our number uh 10 through 6 picks just before jumping into our top five so what what did you have in those slots for the first half of the show yeah so i have soul by pete doctor and kemp powers at number 10 I have Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You from Tom Zimney at number nine. I have Driveways by Andrew Ahn, number eight. I have Minari by Lee Isaac Chung at number seven. And then Christopher Nolan's Tenet all the way at number six. Kevin, if we walk backwards in time, maybe we could go back to that conversation. Not sure if you want to or not, but it's always possible. Uh, I I will consent to do that only if you then shoot me with a time traveling bullet. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, yes. uh, my number ten slot was taken up with Steve McQueen's Lovers Rock. At number nine, I had Charlie Kaufman's Brain Breaker. I'm thinking of ending things. At number eight was ugh. at number eight was Hirokazu Koreeda's The Truth. Number seven, I picked Sound of Metal, directed by Darius Martyr. And at number six, I had Autumn DeWilde's adaptation of the Jane Austen novel, Emma. I think those were those are some pretty good picks. No, uh, you know, no tenant level disagreements there, but 
the second segment is still young, Wade. So let's <laughs> let's jump right in. Yeah. So Wade, what do you have at your number five spot? Yeah. So I actually have Autumn DeWilde's Emma at number five. I don't know if we need to belabor the point, but as you mentioned, I, I just think this adaptation walks that fine line of being faithful to the source material. Uh, and I, I had a chance to read the book again right before I watched the movie. And really just endowing the material with sleek modernization. And I appreciate the way that DeWild comments on the rich lifestyle of the main players by really just kind of highlighting the background attendance throughout the film. And if you read Jane Austen, it's easy to just see her work as an unbiased celebration of this particular group of people. But she's really kind of poking fun at individuals like her, the uppity crowd, while at the same time telling their stories. And I think DeWild finds a way to do that by highlighting the individuals in the background. I'm also struck by this visualization of Emma's turn towards Christian kindness. And I think that's captured very well in the film. And it's able to be captured that way because uh, DeWild allows Emma to be kind of a brat in the first part of the movie. And we, we still like her and we still want to hang around with her character, but she's not super nice. And when she makes that turn, it feels repentant. It feels like the character has changed. There is development there. So yeah, a really great film. Uh, number five, Emma. Yeah, that's a, the, the, all those observations are really great and kind of get at what I was trying to articulate with the, uh, with the, my comments about the film feeling very, very modern while staying true to it. It's, it's period trappings. I, th- I think the class consciousness that you mentioned makes it feel uh, still faithful to Austin while also maybe probing at some parts of, of her fiction that maybe have gone unexplored in other adaptations. And like you mentioned, the, the way that it kind of explores Emma's exploration of, of Christian kindness and Christian charity and kind of what, what it actually means for a person to make that kind of heart change. I think that was also really well portrayed in the film. So I actually was, was surprised to see this as high on your list as you are, but I'm very happy that it made it that high. So good pick for sure. Yeah, no, no, just a lot of fun and just, I don't know, just a really good watch, really good watch. And if, individuals need a little pick-me-up, I would encourage them to check this movie out if they haven't done so already. Yeah, it's a lot of fun for sure. Uh, Jumping into my number five, uh, this is another film that uh, came in earlier on the show at your number seven. It's Lee Isaac Chung's Minari. And I mean, you, you articulate some of what was so great about very well, Wade. I just wanted to highlight also the way that, you know, this is a film that is inspired in part by Chung's own experiences. And you really get a sense for that just in how compassionately every single character is both written 
and acted in this picture. I think it's maybe one of the strongest overall acting ensembles of 2020. Uh, just everybody's, you, you get a sense that Chung has taken the time to really think about what every member of this family really wanted. Like what, what did this move to rural Arkansas mean for this individual? And considering that he is, you know, uh, in, in terms of the movie, he is the, the little boy. Like that is kind of the, the character who is closest to uh, Chung himself when he was living through something similar. The fact that he's able to kind of really go back in his memory and explore what might have been going on internally in each of his family members is really remarkable and kind of marks this almost as just a great work of of memoir. Uh, it's just, it's so compassionate. It's so wonderful. It's extremely funny. I just, the the family dynamics here are at points, you know, very, very heartstring tugging, but it's also just very good at portraying the kind of fun that families can get up to, the way that the, the kids play with their grandma and how she's, you know, she's not your average grandma, but in a very, uh, in, in a way that feels very human rather than kind of quirky for, for quirk's sake. I just, I love it. And I love the way that uh, Chung is compassionately portrays uh, this, this particular setting as not a, you know, a very rosy color. You know, this is a place full of salt of the earth people, but also not a stereotypical, like these people are, because they're rural, they're somehow less sophisticated than people from other parts of the country or, or somehow have, have more issues that maybe other people don't have to deal with. I just think it's, it's just such a warm human film and I, like I said before, I can't wait for more people to discover it when it has its wider release later on. Oh yeah, and I, I didn't mention, but yeah, the grandmother in this film, she is so funny. She, I mean, she's really great. The performances are amazing all around. And there's also a scene where you get an old school Michael W. Smith song, which is a great surprise. <laughs> and I was like, wait. Is uh, you know when he came on is is somebody playing that song? Is this in a movie right now? An A twenty four film? Uh, it's really uh, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, that was a nice little Easter egg for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. If you know, you know. Uh, well, so before I before I name my number four pick, Kevin, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel about movie scenes? where people get hit in the head with falling AC units. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, it's not a subgenre that I have a whole lot of experience with, but the few films that I have seen where somebody's head gets caved in by a falling AC unit, uh, I, I've enjoyed them. <laughs> well, it's a promising subgenre. It's, 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 it's on the move. It's the next big thing. And it's, yeah, it's coming. Uh, I am referring to a moment in Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead, where she stages the death of her father. It's this fictional event of how he possibly could die. An AC unit falls from the sky and crunches, I, I think it's a stuntman uh, in, in the picture. It it's really a great way to open the movie. You know, Dick Johnson is Dead is a movie we talked about 
some time ago, Kevin, and we both just really liked it. To give people a synopsis of the movie, uh, I'd like to just kind of read through what it's about. Um, With this inventive portrait, director Kirsten Johnson seeks a way to keep her 86-year-old father alive forever. Utilizing movie-making magic and her family's dark humor, she celebrates Dr. Dick Johnson's last years by staging fantasies of death and beyond. Together, dad and daughter confront the great inevitability awaiting us all. I've tried to explain this movie to people, Kevin, and every everyone is like, oh, wow, that sounds weird. But it's fantastic. And I appreciate how this movie deals with grief. But even more than that, Kirsten Johnson is spending time with her father. We see them staging these events. We also get some some scenes where he's at her house because he he moves in with her and they just enjoy each other's company. This is a way to deal with grief, but also to get the last morsel of these years out of them. And it's just really kind of a joy to watch. One of, uh, one of the better scenes of the entire year is when the family, uh, including Dick Johnson, they go out uh, trick-or-treating. And Kirsten, she has him sit in a friend's apartment because it's just he's experiencing, uh, he's, he's, he's battling dementia. And while he's out trick-or-treating, he's just, uh, it's very confusing. Uh, to him. So she puts him in front of a TV at a friend's house and he get he becomes very confused. He doesn't know where he is. And so she decides to recreate what that must have felt like in his mind. And we get this kind of strange scene almost in this sort of funky haunted house of him on a couch and him trying to figure out what's happening. And it's just I don't know. It's this great way to get inside his head. And we see more fantasies like that, especially uh, fantasies that that uh, try to depict what maybe happens after life. Uh, Dick Johnson is a Seventh-day Adventist and Kirsten is very respectful of his faith. And there's a lot to kind of mine there. Uh, And yeah, I want to give you time to talk because I know you like this movie as well. Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking. Just start walking to me. That's fantastic. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. (laughs) He said yes. She kills me multiple times. Action! Resurrected dad. Yeah, I definitely will talk at length about this movie a little bit later on in the show. It is on my list as well. I will just, uh, for, for now, I'll just say that when you talk about that one sequence being one of the best scenes of 2020, I think that there are multiple scenes from Dick Johnson is Dead that belong on a list of best movie moments of 2020. It's just, it's a collection of gems and I I love it quite a bit. But for now, I'll move on to my number four, which is another documentary and a fascinating one at that. It is Benjamin Rees' documentary, The Painter and the Thief. 
And this is a a movie with that has it, it's got one of those stories that you have to know like as soon as as re heard about the the story that was happening here he you know that he's like being this is ex- I know that a movie needs to be made about this because it is just it, it's it's a fascinating premise so the the story behind it is uh, an artist an artist named Barbara Kizilkova she's a Czech uh, emigre living in Oslo, Norway. Uh, she's a painter. Um, the film opens with the revelation that uh, some of her paintings have been stolen from the gallery where they've been on display. And we come to find out that the the man who stole them, he gets apprehended pretty quickly. And uh, the the opening action is that Barbara, rather than you know wanting to see him punished, wanting to kind of get her paintings back and never think about him again, she becomes really fascinated with the thief who stole her painting, and she wants to get to know him better. And the way that she gets to know him better is by painting him, by making works of art about him. And this documentary from there just kind of charts the the evolution of their relationship is they as it they go from kind of being on opposite sides of the law to an artist subject relationship to more of a a, a friendship and maybe even beyond that it's a, a fascinating film for the way that it shows this relationship evolving in unexpected and sometimes rather disturbing ways. It does devote time to uh, Barbara's partner kind of asking her, I don't think this is healthy that you are growing so attached to this this man who is you know a thief. He's got he has problems with drugs. There might be some codependency going on here. And the film gives space for those concerns, but by the end of it you get this really striking portrait of the power of, of friendship, uh, the way that forgiveness can heal and uh, cause new new life to grow. And in its closing shot, even poses some really interesting questions about uh, what what is art's role in, in all of this? Like, how does art uh, foster the growth of relationships? How does it affect relationships? How, like when we are observing a relationship through the prism of art, how do we see it differently than uh, otherwise? And I just think those are fascinating uh, questions to be asking, and it's just a very enjoyable picture to just sit down and watch and kind of, again, get lost in and sort of wonder where it's taking you next. Yeah, so I, I just had a chance to watch that last week, and I like the documentary, and I like how the the story grows a little more complicated than you expect. And so you kind of think, oh, they're going to form this friendship and they're going to change each other's life. You know, you you changed my life as much as I changed your life. And, oh, it'd be happy. But it is thornier than that. And I think that's what I like about the movie because relationships, especially of this nature, are not going to be easy, uh, especially when one of the individuals is uh, addicted to drugs and has made a number of uh, poor choices and continues to make poor choices. And yet we see the power of friendship to assist each other through those those difficult moments. If there's one sort of caveat I have about the movie, as I was watching it, I just, I don't know, I guess I got this sense that things were being staged 
or at least it felt like the things could be staged for the documentary. And so I'm watching it and it and I'm wondering what's natural and what was put together for the sake of the movie. And it might be that none of it was, but I just don't know if we saw enough of the film's seams to be able to make that decision. And part of that could be on uh, some of the editing choices and some of the choices around uh, compositions as well as as well as material to include or to shoot and, and what not to shoot. So that would be my only critique of this movie. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair observation to make. For me, I, I think because this is a movie that's so much about what art is and how like even the artifice of art can still kind of arrive at at truth even if it is kind of artificial or staged and i think that for me you know watching it, i was I, I saw those those moments where you're right you do kind of wonder how much of this is spontaneous and how much of it is planned I, that that kind of became part of the fabric of the the movie for me as well it's just sort of is it in portraying this relationship is it sort of also commenting on us as the audience kind of fancying that we have our own sort of knowledge of these people when in reality it is filtered through kind of this more artificial medium. I don't know. I, I, I think that those are interesting questions. And for me, at least the, the questions about how spontaneous some things were actually enriched the, the experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the movie, yeah, does definitely have that meta quality and, and perhaps with just some tweaks, it can maybe lean into that uh, a bit, a bit more, but it is, it's one of those movies that people should, should seek out because uh, it, it is, it's inspiring. I, I think it is. It's inspiring, but it also has those deep questions, like you mentioned of, of art and relationships the film is currently streaming on Hulu, so if anybody would like to check that out, that's how I watched it uh, a couple of days ago if you have a Hulu membership. Uh, so moving on to, to my number three, this is a film, Kevin, you talked about earlier, uh, Sound of Metal from Darius Martyr. Uh, I mentioned a number of things I enjoyed about the film, but I didn't quite touch on a character played by Paul uh Rashi or Racky, I hope I'm pronouncing his his name correctly. He is Joe in the movie, a Vietnam veteran who runs this sort of rural community for deaf addicts. And this is where Ruben, who has lost his hearing or most of his hearing, goes. This is a religious community, a Christian community, and Joe is a Christian. And initially, Ruben sort of scoffs at this and he says he's not religious. And Joe says, well, you know, there's a church that will sponsor you, and it doesn't really matter whether you're religious or not. And that brings up one point about the film that I really enjoy is its depiction of the church. And we we don't always see that in movies. Uh, I think Minari has a good, even at times complicated view of the church. And what we see here in Sound of Metal is a church that's willing to help and willing to serve. And I know for for all the faults that the American church has, I know many organizations, many churches, many Christians who would do something like that and who have served so many people in their community. So it's nice to see that. And Joe, as he talks to Reuben, encourages him to find stillness. And there's a speech that Joe makes. And I feel like I keep coming back to some of the best scenes of the year. And this is such a fantastic scene. 
he's, he mentions this. He says, the world keeps moving. And then he goes on to say, but for me, those moments of stillness, that place, that's the kingdom of God. And I, I wrote this short blurb for the film that's going to be featured uh, here soon on another top 10 list. And I said this, in the end, Reuben's journey doesn't bring him to any altar calls, but the story provokes deep spiritual introspection. Where do we find the kingdom of God? In a transitory world such as ours, in our own abilities and strength, or in the beauty of tapping into a reverberation, a longing embedded deep within the universe? Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. But might this hearing extend further than just our physical senses and instead touch the very fabric of our souls? And I think Sound of Metal connects Reuben's journey to his inward spiritual state. And uh, there's a lot to kind of mine there. And I very much appreciate and, and very much do enjoy this movie. So it landed at number three on my list, Sound of Metal. Beautifully said. I think that that's a, a, a wonderful way to draw out uh, maybe what I was struggling to articulate earlier about the ways that God is talked about in this film and the the way that Martyr is able to draw out just what it means to to live as if this world is not all that there is and to kind of hold hold your your desires with with a with a light with a light grip and, and kind of have trust that there that your plan is not the only plan that there is. I, I think that that's a, a really good way of talking about why Sound of Metal is so compelling. Yeah, yeah, and and you're, yeah, you're, you you hit that the the idea of changes and characters are all these characters are going through changes in their life and there's they're searching for something stable and especially for Joe, um, that's the kingdom of God and finding that. So yeah, I. I I've encouraged people. Hey, you got to watch this. This is this is a great film. If you if you're talking about faith in films, uh, you need to watch Sound of Metal. Uh, so hopefully more people will check it out. And it's currently streaming. I don't know if we mentioned this earlier. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So uh, you can get it now if you have an Amazon Prime membership. Definitely worth two hours of your time. Uh, moving on to my number three. This is a a film that we reviewed way back at the towards the beginning of the the year, Wade. Uh, it's a film that I liked quite a bit then, and I I said was one of the best films of the year. You know, way way back early in 2021, it is still one of the best films of the year. Just all these months later, and that is Kitty Green's film, The Assistant. Um, I, I think that, you know, it does feel uh, very much like a film of its moment, right? Like the the whole Me Too movement has really um, brought out into the open the what what it means to be harassed. Uh, what what when women talk about the patriarchy and the various ways that they feel uh, ground down by it and oppressed by it, I think. Uh, the Me Too movement has really done so much to bring those stories to light and cause uh, those of us who maybe didn't think as hard as we should have before, like myself, to think harder about it and to really try to walk a mile in those shoes. And the assistant really does that uh, for me. I think Kitty Green is able to portray this in this story of you know a, a, an assistant who works for an executive who 
we never really see in focus. He's in the background of some shots and we kind of hear little, you know, we get uh, flashes of his voice uh, over a telephone receiver, but he's never really on screen. And yet his presence just it suffuses the entire film. Just the the cinematography is there's kind of almost this this sickly pallor to it that gives you a sense of what it must be like to go to work every day under the shadow of a man like this. Um, the the performances. I mean, Julia Garner as the the central character is so good in this picture. There's a a, a scene where. Uh, Kitty Green just trains her camera on in close-up on Garner's face as her character takes the call from her boss and is just berated by him mercilessly. We don't get a good, like we don't really fully hear exactly what he's saying to her. We kind of hear his voice, but we can't catch all of the words, but we know he's being utterly nasty to her. And the camera just stays on Garner's face as she just ha- has those things said to her and just the woundedness that comes up on her face and the 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 anxiety and panic the the feeling like she doesn't want to listen to this anymore but it's her job and she just has to uh is is just it's stomach churning and a later scene where she goes to try to make a complaint about her boss about his harassment uh verbally of her his his sexual harassment of others and that conversation with the HR rep doesn't go at all as planned. And it's another stomach-churning scene that is, again, just wonderfully acted and very savvily shot by Kitty Green. It's a difficult film, but it's very good, and uh, it's worth watching for anybody, I think. Yeah, and, you know, this is this is one of those day-in-the-life-of-movies, uh, but it's anything, it, it, it's anything but a simple tale. Uh, and I appreciate, I appreciate what the movie says about this system, and I think that's what makes the decision to not show this boss or executive or producer uh, so much better because this is this is kind of like a parable in a way, and you have that person on top, but there's all these other people around that person protecting them. Or supporting this apparatus. And I like how the film focuses too on on this character, the main character, and how she is faced with this huge decision. And, and, and one, it's do I continue to allow myself to be abused by, by this individual in order to achieve my dreams and maybe make some sort of difference? But then also the ethical decision of... Well, if I stick around, am I supporting what this individual has done? And am I allowing him to hurt other people? And it's just really, it's, it's not an easy situation for this young woman. And I appreciate how Kitty Green explores those, those decisions. And two, I, this is, this is Green's, first feature uh, film she's done some some documentaries and so we just talked about two films in a row by these new directors that are just amazing seeing a sound of metal from darius martyr and then kitty green's the assistant and uh, it definitely uh i think 2020 shows us some some individuals who 
possibly could be the future of, of Hollywood or filmmaking. And uh, it's pretty exciting to see some of their work in, uh, in their films. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's, uh, again, a, a really stunning uh, debut from a, a promising filmmaker. What's your plan? Sorry? Where do you want to be in five to ten years? Oh, uh, I I want to produce. I want to be a producer. You do? Yeah. <laughs> that's, okay, that's excellent. We could use more women producers. You know, that's a, you, it's a tough job, but I can see that you've got what it takes. Thanks. So we're talking about uh, young filmmakers. Now we're going to maybe one of the godfather of filmmakers. He's he's getting close. His work is, uh, I mean, it's been instrumental uh, to growth within the f- just filmmaking in general, and that's Spike Lee. And he produced The Five Bloods this year, a film that uh, I thought was was okay. I wasn't super keen on it. Uh, his film, though, that landed at number two on my list is David Byrne's American Utopia. So this concert Broadway show touches on a number of heavy topics, from social conditioning to racism to consumerism, uh, to name just a few. And yet, American Utopia accomplishes what most post-2016 films uh, where they fail. And I speak, speaking specifically to films that are, uh, that are addressing political or social concerns. And I think namely what it accomplishes, American Utopia accomplishes, is this balance between lament, resolve, joy, and hope. This is a movie that reminds me of how broken the world is, but it also reminds me that not all is lost. And it's that's done through the messaging of these songs and these monologues throughout this show, but also in the way the music is performed. When I listen to these songs, I feel yearning. I feel lament, but I also really feel joy and resolve that maybe we can somehow keep going. And as a Christian, this feeling finds a home in in my faith. And I think it's easy to forget about Spike Lee because this is a show that is fueled by David Byrne. But what I love is, is Lee's direction really does reinforce the stage performances. And if you were to put another director into this seat, this would not be the movie that it is. We'd still get the great show, uh, but there's there's so much that Lee's perspective and his skill adds to the production of this movie. And uh, yeah, it's it's really great. If you haven't already figured it out yet, Kevin, I, I like movies about music. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like uh, this is a year, there were a lot of great movies about music in 2020. So this was a good year for being a person who's really into that stuff. You know, I said this when you uh, talked about the Bruce Springsteen doc, but uh, you know, it, it bears repeating. I just, I think you uh, do your enthusiasm for documentaries about, about films and, and concert films. Uh, you do justice to it just with the way you describe it. I know that you're a huge fan of stop making sense. So as soon as I heard about David Byrne's American YouTube, I'm like, 
I would bet money that this will be on Wade's <laughs> year-end list. And I, I was not disappointed. I just, I should have actually found somebody to take that bet with me, but oh well, maybe next year. <laughs> no, and it's it's funny because uh, this show is supposed to resume in New York City in September. And who knows what everything's going to be like in, in September. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I could find some cheap plane tickets <laughs> to get there. What, what a, yeah, what a, what a show to see. And, uh, but it's, it's great to be able to have this for future generations. And, and just like Hamilton, you know, Hamilton, that's one of those films that, uh, of course, the play is amazing. I don't know if the direction's all there all of the time, but it, 2020 gave us that too. We have a record of that, and we can watch it anytime we want. And, um, and, and I think that's special as well. Same thing with American Utopia. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. Everybody's coming to my house. Everybody's coming to my house. I'm never gonna be alone. And I'm never gonna go back home. Yeah, well, the only thing remaining now is for you to make a documentary about your experience of going to see uh, American <laughs> Utopia in New York when it reopens. Yeah. Uh, I would watch yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> no, and uh, it'll debut on Instagram. That's how it'll get, yeah. that's how we'll get the word out. Yeah, you know, it's it's a brave new world of, of new media and new platforms. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, moving on to, to my number two. Um, this is a film that, like Minari, is in part, at least, about the American dream. And about the ways in which that dream has both special attraction for uh, for immigrants and also is very unforgiving toward immigrants. And I'm talking, of course, about Kelly Reichert's film First Cow. This film, I I, I love this film for a lot of reasons. I love the the portrait of male friendship in it between uh, Cookie and King Lou, the two central characters. Uh, I I love how Reichert is able to portray that that friendship very matter of factly, just with the simple act of King Lou sweeping Cookie's floor while Cookie's you know cleaning up outside. Uh, the way that they kind of look out for each other. And the way that speaks to feelings of friendship that don't need to be spelled out in dialogue. That's one reason I, I like it. I also just like how, even though this is a period piece, it's kind of on, on the Western frontier in the Pacific Northwest. It's very situated in a very specific time. This feels like one of the most timely films of 2020. Just It speaks to so many of of our recent concerns about uh, issues related to immigration, about economic justice, about class, about the ways that American prosperity uh, is ostensibly for everyone, but in reality is reserved for a very few who guard uh, everything they have with great jealousy, even the table scraps that they refuse to throw to the underdogs. I think that that's, that's all here in First Cow. And the fact that it's not one of these big, 
uh, demonstrative, angry films, but it's just a very quiet, matter-of-fact story about two friends trying to make their way, stealing a little milk on the side, you know, as one does. Uh, but it's just, it is content to remain itself, and yet there are such riches to be found within it that I, I don't know, I, I'm looking forward to returning to this film. Uh, I actually accidentally bought this when we were going to review it on the show. I meant <laughs> yes. to just rent it to watch it. And I recently discovered, oh, I accidentally hit the purchase instead of the rent buttons. Now I own it on, on Amazon. And I was like, oh, you know, un- under normal circumstances, I might be disappointed that I'd shelled out more money than I intended to. But now I'm just like, oh, well, cool. I've got a great movie in my collection now that I didn't know I had before. So <laughs> 20, that's how good this 2020 movie is. <laughs> wasn't all bad, right? <laughs> Right, you know, some mishaps are end up uh, for good after. No, all. that's that's true. That's that's really funny. So you can watch it uh, over and over again. There's a there's a show that a couple of people have talked to me about, and I watched the first episode. I believe it's on the Discovery Channel, but it's called Undercover Billionaire, and it's a reality show about a billionaire who goes undercover with like a hundred dollars in a truck and he tries to build a million dollar company in like 60 days or 90 days or something. And and they're really kind of testing out the American dream, right? And as I watched that first episode, I was thinking of First Cow in that that too is a story about the quote unquote American dream. Is it possible? And we see that for some people, uh, it might not be possible. And yet in the midst of all of that, we see this great, this friendship uh, that's a lot of fun and that's sacrificial. And there's something to that quiet beauty. This is a film that's in my top 15, almost made uh, my top 10, just missed it, but it's really a fantastic picture and a really a beautiful movie too. We're out there kind of in the West uh, at the end of the road, and it's it's definitely it, it's definitely set in kind of a wilderness, a wild area, but there still are some scenes of serene beauty uh, throughout, which which makes it special. He's a very fine cow. Well, Wade, we, we've disposed of our number twos, which brings us to the big moments, the, the climactic moment of the show, at least. We've arrived at our number one slots. Mm. So what do you say is the <laughs> finest film of 2020? Well, you know, this is a movie, uh, another film from my list that I did not have a chance to review with you. Uh, I did review it with Steve Norton on the show a couple of episodes ago, and it's Chloe Zhao's Nomad Land. This is a film that stars Frances McDermott as Fern, a widow who leaves her defunct small town to traverse the American West. Now, Fern lives on the road partly by necessity and partly by choice. Throughout the story, she insists that she's houseless, not homeless, Yet, as we travel with Fern from those stark winter compositions of Nevada to the beautiful images of the Badlands, the film's imagery hints that she just might be both. She's a nomad. I I thought that 
the quote-unquote road movie was roadkill, Kevin, until Nomadland, I I felt like, breathed new life into this subgenre. This is a movie that is upfront about the reality of our economic system on certain individuals, but it's also a character study. And what we learn is that Fern is attempting to pave her own way, but she's not entirely without fault. And she might have done a number of things to distance herself from a support network that might have been able to to assist her, to help her. We also learn that she is in some ways running from her past. She's running from grief. And so we get this just beautiful story of her forming a community with other nomads and trying to find her way as, as I mentioned, she goes up and down uh, the the American West. And I, I really do love, towards the end of the movie, she speaks with a, a mentor of sorts. His name is Bob. And he talks about his own grief. And then he says that there really are no final goodbyes on the road. They will see those who've passed on again. Somehow things will be made right. And that's really what Fern is searching for. She's searching for things to be made right. There's this great scene where she's listening to and singing along to What Child Is This? Uh, A story of, of course, Jesus, who too became a nomad. And she's searching for that good news. I... Just, you know, I watched this movie at home and it's one of those movies that it almost feels right watching at home. I kind of wish I was uh, in my camper, my pop-up camper, uh, watching this movie uh, because it just feels like that sort of film. Uh, But this is a a beautiful movie that uh, I was thinking about for a long time and and will continue uh, to think about for, for some time. Yeah, it's a good film. I I regret that I wasn't able to discuss it with you on the show because there is a lot to talk about with this movie and uh, so much to say. But I I do like how Zhao uh, even includes a nod to John Ford's The Searchers towards the end of this mm-hmm. film. We get, we get kind of that, you know, there's that iconic yes. shot of John Wayne stepping out through, through a doorway. He's filmed from behind. Uh, he's framed in the doorway and, and the door kind of closes behind him and sort of symbolizes that he's sort of, he's, uh, you know, kind of this emblem of something very quintessentially American, but also the society is sort of closing its door on him and leaving him behind. And there's a, a shot that Zhao constructs that mirrors that very intentionally of Francis McDormand doing something very similar and the way that it also comments on the the fact that she is also there's something quintessentially american about her and what that says about america and how that's kind of simultaneously a little bit inspiring and also very sad i think is a good way to to sum up the 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 movie as as a whole Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's this it's this this deep sadness uh, about the the state of of her life and also the hope that even in these dire circumstances even in these places where she has been forgotten about 
Perhaps there are people who uh, might be able to help her or people she might be able to help, this, this community that will give her a home out there on, on the road. And Frances McDermott is, she is amazing in this movie. And she's really amazing in, in everything she does. But she is just really, uh, she, she's really great here. Okay, well, uh, we've arrived at, at my number one, and uh, I I spoiled it a little bit earlier because it was your number four, and I said <laughs> I would talk about it. I haven't talked about it until now, and here the big moment has arrived. It's Dick Johnson is Dead, uh, Kirsten Johnson's documentary for Netflix. Uh, and I, I love this film. This film was a balm for me in a lot of ways. Just its vision of... The the tragedy of death giving way to the joy of of new life of of the the way that death is kind of there's this dual nature to it where it is the end of something there the a person who has died is no longer with us here on earth and it is something to mourn uh, we we miss that person and yet it's not the end for that person and that that paradox the way that that death means both the ending of a life but also the continuing of a life the way that a person can be both very much present in the universe while also absent with us is something that Kirsten Johnson really explores so wonderfully in this film i i think about that final shot where we we see Kirsten with her father in kind of this this embrace and we know, based on uh, what we've seen earlier in the film, just kind of the the our knowledge of the real life events that were going on with the Johnsons, we know that that is not a literal representation of reality for her in the present moment. She is no longer with her father, and yet he does still live with her in some way. He is still alive, and there is that that love that they have is persistent and it hasn't just ended because one of them is no longer there in the flesh and all of that comes together to just really make you hopeful that not everything will uh will pass away there are some things that endure and uh we can take we can be hopeful about that and take joy in that and i think 2020 was a year where i at least really needed to see a movie that had that kind of hope to it no, that's that's a I think a fantastic way to sum up uh, this last year through a film that yeah it's just fantastic and something that we haven't touched on as well too is the commitment that Kirsten has for her father so she uh, moves him into her home and she essentially says for the rest of your life. I will take care of you. And I found that inspiring as well. 
And in a world where uh, we want to be able to make any decision at any moment, if we'd like, uh, we want to be in complete control to make a commitment like that, I think is just powerful. And I know many people who've made commitments and taken in their, you know, parents or in-laws, even, even when those in-laws or parents are relatively young and said, Hey, for the rest of your life, 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is, uh, we will care for you. And, um, that's, yeah, that's really powerful. Uh, great pick, Kevin, uh, your number one of the year. Are there any other movies that you didn't have a chance to talk about that, uh, just missed your list uh, that you'd like to, to, I guess, give a shout out to before we head out. Oh yeah, uh, so uh, we we already talked about Soul. That one just missed uh, my top ten. I liked it quite a bit. Um, it just it there there are parts of it that I think are you know hold it back from being a masterpiece, but I still think it's just it's it's very very good. It's a, a wonderful. Return to form for Pixar. Uh, I really liked Palm Springs. That was a, a a comedy that was on my top ten for a really long time until a couple of last minute entries pushed it down to my number eleven. But I think that's uh, it's a very funny movie, and it's also a, a very it's a smart movie. And I don't know. I might have to turn in my my cinephile card for saying this, but Wade, I think it's better than Groundhog Day. <laughs> I'll just I'll put it out there. I think it's Ooh. it's it's that good. Um and I also want to give a shout out to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I just think that this is the it was the second August Wilson cinematic adaptation in a row that um I I saw uh and was just uh kind of kind of floored by. Um I think Fences, Denzel Washington's Fences, uh was the better film, but Ma Rainey's Black Bottom just has some real some some things to really recommend it and uh chadwick boseman it believe the hype he's just wonderful in it so i wish i could have found space for that one as well but that's that's the way it goes sometimes with top 10 lists yeah he he really is he's he's fantastic uh palm springs currently sitting at number 11 for me too and the film is very funny and it's fascinating too because it is a bit raunchy but I feel like the film's presentation of of sex is actually kind of conservative in that you have a character who just spends his day kind of doing whatever he wants, pursuing whoever he wants because he's living that same day over and over again. And it just brings him kind of this, this emptiness and he really longs for a true love, a, a lasting connection. Uh, so yeah, I had that at number 11. We've talked about some of the other films that round out my top 15, with the exception of one, and I think Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. Uh, that made my top 15. I think it's a funny, funny film. And Bill Murray, uh, Rashida Jones, they're just fantastic in it. And then uh, you mentioned Raw, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, The Trip to Greece, uh, is very good. And then if you're just looking for a really good, fun picture, Bill and Ted face the music is just a really, it's a good one. You really can't go wrong with that. So those are some other movies that we have not talked about. Uh, and, uh, but I, I did at least want to uh, give a shout out. Kevin, uh, so glad that you're back and happy that we could do this, you know, marathon episode. It's always the highlight of my podcast year to do this top 10. 
Yeah, likewise, it was a lot of fun. And yeah, it's great to be back in the saddle. Here's to uh, another 50-odd episodes until our next Top 10 <laughs> until episode. Top 10 of 2021. Let's hope we get some of those movies we've been promised for a while. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll get I, to see I, them. I need that Wes Anderson movie, Wade. I need it. <laughs> I need the David Lowry Green Knight movie. Oh, yes. That's what I need. Also that. Yeah, and then, of course, Dune. Uh, from Denis Villeneuve, so we'll we'll see. We'll we'll get to that later on uh, here later in the year. Listeners, thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.